All right. Well, good morning, Doxa Church. Guys, go ahead and grab a seat. Guys, it's, it's great to be together today. If uh, we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Rob. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. It's, it's great to have you part of the, the Doxa family today. We're going to jump right in, so I want you to go ahead and grab your Bible and find your way to 1 John chapter 2. All right. If you're kind of newer to Doxa, kind of feeling out like what our church family is is all about, like guys, we're we're a pretty simple group, and when we gather like this, we we gather around the Bible. That we really believe that this is a book that God wrote, and in it are not just like encouraging, uplifting words, but very words from God for our good. And every time we gather like this, we gather with expectation and anticipation that God is going to help us. He's going to change us. He's going to encourage us. He's going to direct our steps as we walk through the everyday stuff of life. And you know, I became a Christian at the age of 23 reading this book. And as I've been studying it for the last 16 years and, and reading it and memorizing and meditating on it, preaching it, guys, God moves powerfully through his word. And I grew up with a, a very wonderful Christian mother who prayed for me all the time. She's here today somewhere in here. And, but it took some time for me to come to Jesus. And it's not because my mom was like a bad Bible teacher and didn't know how to pray or anything like that. I was just more stubborn and sinful than most people, okay? But uh, amen, mom, wherever you're at. There you go. You don't, no, you don't have to say that, right? I'll, I'll talk to my counselor about that this week, okay? But anyway, guys, we're going to jump right in. We left off in uh, chapter 2, verse 27. We're going to pick it up in 28. And this is what John says. We're hearing from Jesus' best, most faithful friend. He's an old man at this point, writing to Christians, addressing things of life, talking them about following Jesus and what it's all about. And here is what John says in chapter 2, verse 28. And now, so he's transitioning from talking about false teachers, and he says, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure, and again, if you haven't circled every time John says that in this book, circle that, you may be sure. This is John's overall point. But he wants us to have assurance and security in our relationship with God, thinking about eternity. He says, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. All right, so what we have here is in context, John has just got done warning these Christians who he's writing to about false teachers that were really just kind of infiltrating the church. And these false teachers, as they were coming in, they were, they were sharing things, they were confusing people about the identity and the activity of Jesus, but they were also causing people to think wrongly about themselves, to think wrongly about the sin in their life. And as we've been reading John's letter, all right, he's essentially been doing two things just consistently, which are really helpful for us today. The first thing that he's been doing as he writes, he seeks to expose these false teachings of the time of these Christians in their space. These false teachings that were confusing people about Jesus, he's, he's exposing that. But secondarily, he kind of comes alongside these, these men and women, and he aims to really just encourage them and reassure them of the truths of God, the truths of their life, and the truths of their faith. And last week, if you look back as we considered verses 18 through 27, John issued this warning against these false teachers, and he basically says to the Christians, hey, you need to look out. You need to just stand firm because there's people that are all around you that they don't love Jesus, they don't embrace God's word, and they're gonna teach you things that are just simply not true. And if you believe these things and walk in these things and embrace these things, it's gonna keep you from seeing all of who God is 
and what he has for your life. And it's very much a warning, as we heard from this last week, it's a very much a warning for us today. Like, history just kind of goes around the same cul-de-sac, right? We're, we're all in that place. But now, after John gives this warning, he turns to encourage these Christians and really just encourage us to help us have confidence in our faith. He's talking to these Christians, he's encouraging them, helping them have confidence in their faith in the midst of people that are just kind of denying, refuting, arguing, confusing what they believe. And John's big goal today is really just to help us understand and really stay on the right course following God in the midst of a world that largely doesn't recognize him as significant or special. That we come in here and as Christians, it's normative to have our hands up in the air and sing he's an awesome God in a lot of ways We're kind of sojourners and pilgrims in a foreign land. And many people don't view God like that. And so John is gonna encourage us today. And in these first words, if you look back, he shares some theological truths to really help us to understand this. He says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. I want you to underline that in your Bible. And not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Okay, so here's what you need to know. Okay, there's a lot going on here. First, something that we've been talking about repeatedly throughout this study is John is telling us that as Christians, God is our Father, and we have been born into the family of God. And this is ultimately really what the gospel is all about. And this idea of being born, this little word born, is actually a really massive word. It's packed with a lot of significance for John. He uses this throughout his letters. If you look back to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, we see Jesus talk about this idea. But here's what this is all about. All right, the truth is, is that no one is born a Christian. I know that you, some of you, that you're born in the church and all this stuff, and you ask, like, when did you become a Christian? You're like, I kind of just popped out and born a Christian. The truth is, no one's born a Christian, Right? That's actually true, Doxa, okay? You can be born like left-handed, but not a Christian, okay? And so we all come out separated from God. And we're all in the place of needing to be born again in order to be reconciled to God because we're all born physically alive, but spiritually dead because of sin. And so we're in a place, all of humanity, that we need to be made again alive, born again to be spiritually alive. And this happens through the one who our church is all about, Jesus Christ, that God looked at the people he created, the ones he loved, he looked at you, he looked at me, and he saw just our dire situation that we're in. And if you don't know this about your life and you're newer to doxa, you're newer to the Bible, you're newer to Christianity, sin is a very real part of our world. And sin is a very real part of your life, that we are all sinful people. In the same way that Nate can get up here and share the truth that you've never locked eyes with someone that doesn't mean a significant amount to God, the truth is you've never locked eyes with someone who is not radically impacted by sin. And when we talk about sin, right, we all have different thoughts and feelings on this, and it's really helpful to understand sin is that sin is really just anything that God is not. It's missing the mark. And the truth is, is that we all miss the mark at times. No matter how godly you think you are, no matter how much you know your Bible, no matter how many hours you spend on your knees in prayer, we all do things that we shouldn't do and we don't do things that we should do. And the Bible really just calls this sin. And when you look around the world at all the brokenness, at all the pain, at all the hurt, at all the injustice, the Bible says that the root cause of all of that is sin. And it's in our world and it's in our lives and the nature of sin is that it separates. 
It separates us from each other and you feel this with relational pain, you feel this with the craziness that's going on in our world, brokenness, but it also separates us more significantly from God because he's holy and he's perfect. Or if you look back to verse 29, to use John's language here, he's righteous. And because he's righteous, he can't be in the presence of sin. And so while God loves us and he loves you, he can't accept us as we are because of our sin. And this is why ultimately Jesus is so important to all of humanity, that God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ to reconcile the people that he loves to himself. And Jesus, we talk about this all the time, right? He lives a sinless life that I was supposed to live. He goes to the cross, he dies a death that I should die for the punishment of my sin. And then he rises from the grave to achieve the thing that I could never achieve on my own. Reconciliation, forgiveness of sin, escape from hell, a right relationship with God. And many people, we don't quite get this. We, we spend our lives thinking about philanthropy and morality and all of these different things but it's only Jesus. And it's through faith in Jesus where he takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness, he brings us to God, and it's then that we enter into the family of God as his kid. Or chapter three, verse one, children of God. All right, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that your entire Bible is about. The Bible is about one story with one hero and his name is Jesus. And so John says when we come to Jesus, He brings us into the family of God as children of God. And as this happens, this is the position where we have confidence in where we stand with God. I mean, some of you in here, I know, you're wondering, where do I actually stand with God? Like, how can I be sure of like, is God really mad? I mean, I'm sure, I guess he saw what I did last night. He he knows what I'm gonna do tomorrow. And you ask that question, like, how do I know if I'm right with God? John says, if you're a child of God, you can have confidence in where you stand with him when Jesus returns. Now, we need to talk about this, okay? The second coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus. And if you know your Bible, Jesus, in fact, has two visitations to earth, right? The first has already happened several thousand years ago when he came in humility as a child. And at that coming, he came to identify with us to die for us and to give to us salvation and eternal life. And he did this all through his death and his resurrection from the grave. And after those monumental events, Jesus then ascends back into heaven. And if you were to see Jesus today, you wouldn't see him in humility and the baby's manger, but you would see him in glory on the throne, ruling over all of creation as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and surrounding the throne is angels, Multitudes of angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is our Jesus. He came in humility. He's now elevated and seated in glory, ruling over all creation. And so as he's seated in glory, then we see in places like Revelation chapter 19, which is a book that John also wrote later on in his life, that we see that Jesus will actually come back in glory to usher in the new heaven and the new earth And as he comes this time, he won't come as a child, he will come as a judge to bring judgment to all creation and in that moment he will eradicate evil and sin for eternity. And it's the day that we all look forward to as Christians, right? The day that Jesus will come and he will wipe away that final tear from our eyes in death and sadness and brokenness, it'll all be gone and we just say, come, Lord Jesus. But this is the second coming. And at this second coming, we don't know when this is happening, 
but we know that it will happen and all people will stand before Jesus to give an account for their life. And this doctrine of the second coming is really just a very significant one. It's mentioned all throughout your New Testament. It's been noted by uh, some theological scholars, some Bible scholars, that one in every 25 verses in your New Testament talk about and deal with the return of Jesus. That the coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus, is mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. So it is a big deal. It's a major doctrine of the Bible. It's a major deal for the Christian faith that Jesus will, in fact, come back. And we know that this is true because through Jesus' resurrection, he didn't just defeat death and sin and all this, but he showed himself to be who he said he was. That Jesus said, I am God, and you can speculate and say, well, I don't know if that's actually true, but then he proved it by raising back from the dead, and he vindicated and validated everything that he said about himself. And so Jesus is, in fact, going to come back, and we don't know the hour. But what the New Testament encourages us to do is really just to be prepared. To be prepared. Now let me just ask you this, okay? When you think about that, right? When you think about Jesus coming back to bring final judgment, what comes to your mind? Like how, how do you feel when you think about like Jesus returning in glory and you standing before him giving an account of your life? Like how does that make you feel? I mean the truth is this idea of Jesus' second coming It either attracts mockery, it instills fear, or brings about comfort. That some people will hear this and they'll just just chalk it up to like a wives' tale, it's just mythology, it's foolishness. Others will be like, okay, I I think this is actually real, but they're terrified, thinking like, man, what is that gonna be like? Like, what am I, how is it gonna play out for me? And then there's some in here that you'll be super excited But here's what John says, look back. He says there's ultimately gonna be two responses to Jesus' return. He says some are gonna shrink back and be ashamed because without faith and forgiveness of sin, there's just judgment and condemnation and damnation ahead. But he says also there's gonna be those that are just filled with confidence, like boldness and comfort. And I want you to know John's big point in this is so that you may be sure where you stand with God. And so what he says is he's basically like, your response to this, your confidence in this is around one big question. And Doxa, this is one of the biggest questions that you will ever answer. Are you a child of God? Are you a child of God? We really need to understand this, okay? Your confidence and your comfort in that day when Jesus comes back is rooted in your identity. Look back to chapter three, verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. This is where our confidence comes from. This is our, our, our comfort in this. It's not because of what we do. It's not because of how godly we think we are. It's because of our identity that Jesus actually gives us. It's around this idea of being children of God. And there's three primary things that make us children of God. That in order for us to move from being enemies of God to becoming children of God, where God is now our Father, three things must happen in our lives. We need to receive, believe, and be born of Jesus. And when you receive Jesus and you believe in Jesus, this gives us confidence in Jesus where we have comfort and not fear when we think about him coming back as judge. Look how John puts it. It's gonna come up here on the screen. In his gospel, chapter one, John says this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so for the sake of clarity, because this is so important, this is the most important thing about all of our lives, let me just quickly break this down, okay? So to receive Jesus means to not just like merely intellectually agree with some facts about Jesus, but to welcome and submit to him in a very personal way. That to receive here literally means to grab a hold of. That if you receive Jesus, the truths of Jesus are not just facts that float around in your head that you know, but they're part of who you are. And some of you that have been growing up in the church, you know a lot about Jesus. But you need to understand that this knowledge then gets played out on the stage of our lives because this is what John has been saying since the very beginning of this letter, that the truth that we really believe is the truth that we actually live. And that's why he says in 1 John 2.29 that if we practice righteousness, we can be sure that we are in him. We can be sure that we're a child of God. That when we receive Jesus, not only does he like forgive us of our sin, but he changes us and he makes us new. Where at that moment, the story of Jesus begins to play out on the stage of our lives, which gives validation and evidence that we actually are a child of God. And so I would encourage you, and John, through his writing, would encourage you to kind of step back and just evaluate your life and ask yourself, is the story of Jesus being played out on the stage of my life? Do I see Jesus' loving fruit coming out of my life? Think about your life like that. To believe in his name is to trust what Jesus says and really just denotes action. And this is the process of putting our faith in Jesus, knowing that he's the only way to come to God, that on our own, because of sin, we cannot do it, but Jesus gives us the bridge to cross us from death to life and makes God our Father, and we become his kids. And when these two things happen, Jesus says we're born of God. And this is what we love to celebrate here, forgiveness of sin, new life. This is why we love baptism so much, because in baptism, we see this play out in that act. Now, what John does here now, moving into chapter three and beyond, is he really just expands on and gives us marks of those who are children of God. And from this point on, over the next several weeks as we finish up this book, he's gonna be telling us what it means to live as a child of God. And so if you are a Christian here, this is what our lives should be looking like. And if you're not a Christian here, you need to know that we're imperfect, sinful people, but this is what we're shooting for, to be like Jesus. And the big idea that holds this all together is this. When you know who you are, you know what to do. That our identity drives our activity. And John says that if you are a child of God, this is your identity, then here is your activity. This is what your life should be marked with. And and what I love about this is we can see the marks of a child of God by looking at the marks of kids and families today. Because right, I want you just to think about it. When we, when we see this, when we think about kids in a family today, we see that, that kids, in large part, think like their parents think, act like their parents act, and love what their parents love. And so I want to re- spend the rest of our time just considering these marks of a child of God. So the first one, kids think like their parents think. All right, just do this. Think back to when you were a little kid. All right, just think back. There were most definitely times in your life that you just embraced what your parents embraced, right? You thought what your parents thought, and this is what you did. You wanted to be like your parents. You know, for example, years ago, when I was in college, okay, I, um, I used to work for the city of Bowling Green during the summers, and I primarily worked in a cemetery, believe it or not, like for four years in a row, right in the middle of campus, I dug graves and weed whack tombstones, okay, this is what I did. 
but I had this big Chevy truck that was a big work truck that I drove around. And one day I was, I was running out of gas. And so I, uh, I went to the gas station, I'm filling it up. And as I'm standing there pumping gas, this little kid couldn't be more than nine years old, right? He's just standing there leaning in front of his dad's truck. And he looks at me and he just goes, Chevy, huh? And I was like trying to be nice, and I'm like, yeah, bro, sure is, right? And so I just kept pumping gas, and he's just standing there like staring at me. It was kind of awkward. I was like intimidated by this nine-year-old. I don't even know why. But he, after a while, he just looked at me, and he's like, hey, man, real men drive Fords. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like thinking, I'm like, did this kid just come at me, right? He didn't even hit puberty yet. Like, what is he doing? But I was confused at like, where the heck did this kid get that? And then I hear the little bell ding from the the door on the gas station and out walks this burly looking lumberjack dude. He's got a built Ford tough shirt on and a hat that says real men drive Fords. And I'm like, there it is, right? He was just doing and he thought like his dad thought. He learned from his dad and he did and thought the same things as his dad did. Now check this out. Just like that, just like that kid thought as his dad, children of God think like their heavenly dad. And really, this way of thinking, it encompasses everything. It encompasses how we view life, how we view culture, how we view everything, but it starts with our identity. See, when we talk about thinking like God, one of the most important things for us to learn is knowing who we are knowing who we are. And so Christian, I want to remind you that you are a loved child of God. This is your identity. Chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And I want you to circle this. And so we are. That's a declarative statement. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. There was an old Jewish rabbi named Abraham Heschel, and he said it like this. He said, we become what we think of ourselves. What determines one's being is the image one adopts. And so I'll ask you this. Who are you? Like, what do you think about yourself? This is so important for us, and I believe this is one of the primary reasons that John hits on being children of God so hard throughout this letter. He says you need to think of yourself the right way. You need to know who you are and how God thinks of you and how God sees you because there's so much dissonance a lot of times in our lives between how we actually stand with God and God thinks about us and how we think about ourselves because of culture and people who have beat us down and said something. It says know who you are. And as we read this, what's so interesting is when John says, see what kind of love, he uses this very unusual Greek word to like just express like the utterly foreign nature of God's love. All right, the Greek word that John uses here is the word potapin, which literally points to and means of what country. And so what John is saying is that God's love is just so unusual. It's so foreign that it doesn't even seem to make sense and it's so unique that its results in our lives is crazy, the greatest of which is how he can take a jacked up guy like me and a jacked up woman like you and make us into children of God. He says it's amazing. 
And so I want to take a minute and just let you know that if you have received Jesus and you have believed Jesus, you are in fact a child of God. And you know, need to know that God's love for you is crazy. And you will never fully understand this, this side of glory. I mean, even the Apostle Paul, as he talked about this and he thought about the love of God, he couldn't even really find exact language to communicate how significant it was. That for Paul, the thought of the love of God, he just says, man, it is broad. It is deep, it's marvelous, it's unimaginable, it's limitless, it's boundless, it's endless. And then he says in Ephesians chapter three that it surpasses knowledge. And so as you think about yourself as a child of God, you should think loved. You are loved. And I love the opportunity, if you're newer to Doxa and being like, wow, you guys don't really get that deep. Guys, this is about as deep as it gets. And I love the opportunity to give you the Sunday school message, the Doxa Kids message, that you are in fact loved, that God loves you. And as Christians, I mean, this should never cease to amaze us and this should never cease to fill us with worship, wonder, awe, and praise as we open our eyes in the morning and understand that we have a heavenly Father who absolutely loves us. It should blow us away and it should cause us to worship. And so Christian, think of yourself like this. You are God's child. You are in his family and this will never change. That you can never be disowned by God. And some of you, you may have brought dishonor to your family. Some of you, your parents might have disowned you, but that's not our God, amen? This is not how God sees us. This is not the Father that he is. That his love through Jesus has covered you and your sin, your past, your present, and your future, and there is great joy, there is great security in this reality. And John says, this is who you are right now. No matter what's going on in your life, Christian, right now, right now, God loves you. You're his. You're wrapped up in the Father's arms. But it goes even deeper than this, and it gets even better than this. Because when Jesus comes back, John says, look back, that when we're with him in glory, we'll be made new to such a different extent that we really don't even know what it looks like, but he says we will be like him because we will see him. He says it just keeps getting better. Like the best is seriously yet to come, that this is not the end, that it's gonna get even better. There's a guy named Richard Baxter. As he thought about this truth of the love of God, the transforming nature of God and and being transformed like him when Jesus comes back, here's what he says, and I quote, my knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim, but it's enough that Christ knows all and I shall be like him. And hope and joy arise from this. Doctor, do you know that every day of your life as you walk with Jesus, God is silently at work to create in you the mind of Christ. He's at work in you through his spirit to learn to think like Jesus, to talk like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus. That God is all about helping his kids be conformed to the image of Jesus. And while that is wonderfully true now, John says, We haven't even scratched the surface yet. We don't even know what that's gonna look like, but there is joy and there is hope coming. He says you need to think this way because it's absolutely true of you if you've received and believed Jesus. And if you haven't received and believed Jesus, this is not true of you. 
But God is a father with a father's heart and he loves you and he's brought you here so that you could hear this, so you can come to Jesus and he can become your dad. And all of that could be true. The second mark of being a child of God is this, that kids act like their, their parents act. Look at verse three. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So I need to explain this to you, okay? A little intense. I want you to think of Grandpa John writing this. He's loving us and telling us this truth. But let me just say this. Like, when I was little, I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to act like my dad. And I, and I remember one of the things that I wanted most was to eat the things that my dad ate. I don't know if you guys ever did that, but that was like my thing. I wanted to be so much like him that whatever he ate, I wanted to eat. And that seems great, but my dad was one of the seven people in the world that liked blue cheese dressing, okay? And, and we would just like, every time we would go to dinner or have dinner, it was like every night I would try a spoonful of blue cheese dressing and just make myself dry heave. I just wanted to be like my dad. And I didn't do this because my dad looked at me and he was like, you have to do this, you're my son. But I did that because I loved him and I wanted to be like him. Christian, let me just tell you this. Our actions stem from our affections. What you love, you do. This is true. And if we've experienced and received the radical, crazy love of God, our life action will follow from this affection. And that's why John starts with identity. He tells us who we are before he tells us what to do because our identity drives our activity. That God comes to us and he says, I love you, I've chosen you, you're my child, before he ever tells us what to do. He just says, I love you, you're mine. I'm never gonna leave you, I'm never gonna forsake you. And as a response, our lives begin to change and look more and more like him. Theologically, we call this sanctification. Christians tend to not think about this as much. We like to think about like justification, coming to Jesus, being forgiven of sin, and then glorification, going to heaven. But it's like life is like a double-stuffed Oreo, right? We forget about this whole thing in the middle. This is called life where we walk with Jesus faithfully and become more and more like him. And it's all as a result of the love of God in our life. That affection drives our action. This is the natural result of anybody who has truly experienced the love of God through Jesus. We change. Now look at verse three. John kind of shares this. He says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Okay, so, so God is pure, and so as his kids, we should be pure as well. Now the question then is like, what does it mean to be pure? And what I think John is talking about here is he's talking about being morally pure as Jesus was morally pure. All right, the apostle Peter, he says it this way in 1 Peter 1.16, you should be holy, for I am holy. All right, and holy just literally means to be set apart. And so as children of God, what this means is that you're not intended to blend in, but you're intended to look like your father. And this isn't religion, this is imitation. 
All right, this isn't following a bunch of rules. This is living in relationship with our Father who loves us and changes us. That a kid looks like their parent. Children of God should look like our Father. And again, we don't do this out of obligation, but out of affection. Now, if you look back, John says a few things here that have confused some people, okay? He says that Jesus came to take away sin, to destroy the works of the devil, right? Evil and sin and hell, and there's not confusion on that. We're like, okay, then we know that Jesus did this. This is the gospel that we started with. But also, verse seven, he says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever practices, makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Then verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And so how are we to understand this, right? Because some people have, have used this verse to teach that if you truly are a Christian, that means that you don't sin anymore. Any sinless people in here? Okay, good, no hands, right? You've got a wall back there, you can hit your head off it a couple times and knock some sense into you, right? But no, we all sin. Every single one of us. But what are we supposed to do with this? Because maybe people are sitting here thinking, maybe I'm not a child of God because I know what I did last night. I know what I'm thinking right now. I know what I've done. I still sin. What does that mean? Doxy, here's what you need to know. As John talks about sin, he does so in a very specific way. If you look back, notice how many times phrases such as practice of sinning, keep on sinning, practice righteousness, they occur so many different times. And the use of practice and keeping on is what John is emphasizing. So he is not saying that Christians don't sin because he said in chapter one that if anyone says that they don't have sin in them, the truth is not in them. But rather what John is talking about is a perpetual lifestyle of sin. All right, John's talking about the person whose life is just primarily marked by disobedience and not faith in purity and righteousness. That there's a big difference. I want you to understand this. There's a big difference between messing up and sinning and living in sin. And apparently the false teachers in John's day that he's addressing here, they were really just kind of indifferent to sin. Saying, yeah, sin's not really a big deal. It's, it's real, but it's not a big deal. And this is something as Christians that should never be true of us. All right, there's a guy named David Allen. He says it like this. You can be no more indifferent to sin than you could be indifferent to a rattlesnake in your house. That sin is dangerous. It kills. God hates it. Jesus died for it. So sin is something that we, by the grace and the power of God, take seriously and seek to stay clear from. And so John is saying, if you look at your life and the primary mark is sin and lawlessness and disobedience and you really don't feel any conviction about that, you really don't have any desire to change and you say that you're a Christian, John would say, hey, pull over the car, the check engine light is coming on, you might wanna consider your faith. Is it actually genuine? And again, this is what he has been hitting on in the last few chapters. But Christian, you need to understand this side of glory, you will in fact sin. And this is why we're so excited about Jesus, amen? That he's our advocate, he's our propitiation that we talked about several weeks ago, he's our redeemer. But I want you to understand this, John uses a word here that is the answer to unlocking holiness and purity in our lives. Look back, it's the word abide. Abide. And abide means this, 
It's simply to remain in. It's to rest in or to stay with Jesus. And Jesus, in John's gospel, he mentions this a lot. He says to abide in his love. He says continually to abide in me, to let his words abide in us. And so in a nutshell, abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. So in other words, our relationship to Jesus is intimately connected to what we do with our Bibles. Please hear me on that. It's what we do. It's connected to what we do with our Bibles. And here's what I'll tell you. Because I've been learning to abide. I've been learning to abide, and this has changed everything. And I know that you're like, you're a pastor. You've been a pastor for a while. You should already have that locked down. I'm learning this. Like so often throughout my life, like my relationship with God, my intimacy with God was about like production. And it was about me doing a bunch of things and not doing things. I've been encountering and experiencing the great joy of abiding, of remaining with, of living with Jesus. And this has changed everything about my life, my joy, my holiness, and my hope. And we don't have to think of these words like abide and make it super mystical. You got a Bible in your hand that is God's words to you. He speaks to you, he nourishes you, he convicts you, he trains you, he empowers you. And as I've been learning to abide, one of the several disciplines that I've put in my life that are very practical, nothing even revolutionary, we teach it to our doxa kids. Get up in the morning and I just write the Bible. And I find myself, even this morning, I was like, I don't have my sermon completely done. It doesn't feel good. And I was like, I got up at five. I'm like, I'm just gotta get a couple hours of work in. And I just like sat there in front of my computer. I was like, I just wanna spend time with the Father right now. And I just wrote my Bible. And then in the front part of my journal, I have a couple pages where I pray for my wife, I pray for my kids, I pray for all of you. And I just talk to my dad. And I can tell you guys, Like, there is nothing like abiding. God meets us in that moment and he changes us. He changes us through his words and he helps us to remain in him and with him and live like him. And this is one of the reasons why we seek to be a Bible-saturated church, that we always say the stupid line of, like, if you prick us, we bleed Bible. We're trying to reinforce the truth that abiding is so significant for our lives with Jesus. And every time we open up the Bible, every time we read the Bible, every time we teach the Bible, God kind of just opens our eyes, he softens our hearts, and he turns on the lights, and he allows us to see him more clearly. And as we see our Father and experience his love, that affection then drives our actions, and we start to act like our dad. Kids act like their dad. So they think like their parents, they act like their parents, and the last thing is this, Kids love what their parents love, verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John's final point is that every person is a member of one of two families. God's family or the devil's family. And John says that the distinguishing mark is what one practices. Righteousness or sin? 
And then he specifies one specific act of righteousness that he already talked about in chapter two, and we're gonna return to this again and again and again as we go through this book. It's love. It's love. And I'm gonna reinforce this every time I can teach the Bible to you. The Bible is ultimately about God's love. And before it talks about us and our love and giving away love, it talks about God giving his love to us. And this is very different from our culture. You know, and when our culture tends to think about love, it tends to think about a love that is almost like exclusively self-love. But as you open up the Bible, you realize the Bible doesn't really talk about self-love at all. But what we see is this. Love God, love people. Jesus says this is what it's all about, loving God and loving people. And so God is saying to us in this moment, let's reorient our understanding of love. God's saying, love me, love people. He's saying, don't go in, but go out. Don't go in with love and love yourself, but go out with love and love people. This is what it's all about. This is what children of God do. And we talked about this love for others a few weeks ago, and we're gonna get into this more next week. But let me just say this. John is just echoing his best friend, Jesus. And he says that children of God love their brother. And what this means is that they have love for people around them, people that are different, people that view the world different, people who have different political opinions, people who have different perspectives. He says you love just like our big brother Jesus loved. And I want you to know, guys, this is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. And it's really the litmus test to determine if our faith and our love for God is real. And it's my regular prayer that this would be the primary mark of our church family. That there are so many things that Doxa Church could be known for, but there's one thing that I hope we're known for. Love, just like our Jesus. One of my heroes in the faith, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said it like this. The final purpose of Jesus dying was not merely that we might be forgiven or saved from hell, rather, It was that a new people might be formed, a new humanity, a new creation, and that a new kingdom be set up consisting of people like himself. This is what John is getting at. This is what children of God are all about, and so this is what our church family must be all about. When you know who you are, you know what to do. Our affections will drive our actions. So I'm out of time, but let me just end with this. All that John shares here is under the umbrella of beloved. Remember when we talked about that a few weeks ago? Beloved, you have a dad in heaven who loves you. Christian, just accept that and receive that right now. You have a God in heaven who loves you. And as he gives you his love, he does so by giving you his life, his everything. He gave Jesus Christ. And this is the love that not only saves you, but it's what changes you into the likeness of Jesus, who you were created by and who you were created for. And so I just have one application for you today. You could talk about so much. I could say, you know what? Purify yourself. Right? You could do that because God is pure. Repent. Change. Have a different perspective. There's so many different applications. I think that there's one that's at the root that everything will flow from. And if we get this one thing right, everything will come. Doxa, 
abide. It's withness. This is what we started the year off with. And that wasn't just like a, a cool word, not, not even cool word, a made-up word. But it's, it's the essence of the Christian life. Withness through prayer equals spiritual power. Abide. So maybe this week what you do is just grab your Bible and read. Turn off the TV. Turn off the, the music in your car and just talk to the Father on your way to work. And just practice abiding and don't get yourself beat up when you realize you're like me, right? That I'm like ADD when I'm trying to pray, right? Just talk to your dad. My kids come and talk to me all the time. And they're all over the place. Dad, I love you. Ice cream, squirrel, right? You know, it's just like, okay, girl. Love you. Doxa, let's abide. Let's pursue our Father this week because He's pursuing us. He's always there. And let's just abide. And everything else will work itself out. Let me pray. Father, I, I love you. And I thank you for the great gift of being a child of God. I thank you for pursuing me that the truth of Paul in Romans 5, 8, that while I was still in my sin, Jesus, you died for me. And I thank you that there was a man named Andy that you loved and you brought into your family that then had your love in his heart that he came loving me and he just opened up the Bible in front of me and you opened my eyes to see your love for me in the way that you made through Jesus. Would you help us to remember the gospel? Would you help us to be people that understand and like wrap our, try and wrap our arms around your love for us in a way that it just makes us wanna pursue you and sit at your feet just like Mary? Help us to be a church family that abides that remains with you, that spends time with you. And as we do that, your love would just permeate our lives and flow from our lives, that we would be known as people who love that are like our Jesus. That, that, that's our prayer. God, if there is someone in here that does not know your love, they've heard of your love, but they've not experienced it through coming to Jesus, would you just overwhelm them in this minute and say, I love you, come to me, I will take your sin and give it all to you. So we love you, and as we sing, we remember how you came to our rescue.